I'd like to draw your attention to God's Word as we find it in the third psalm. Psalm 3. We're going to be reading the third psalm in its entirety. So hear then from the Word of the Lord. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let me pray. Father, we come before you rejoicing and trembling. We come before you with trembling because we know that our Heavenly Father is not somebody of ours who's at the same level with us. We come trembling before you because we know you, our Heavenly Father, are the creator and sustainer of all things, the one of whom all the angels sing, He is holy, holy, holy. And so, Father, we also come with trembling because we know that we are unholy, We come before you as those who are sinful. And so we come before you repentantly, asking for the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, at the same time, we also come rejoicing, knowing that because of your Son's person and work, His death, His burial, His resurrection and ascension at your right hand, we can now come rejoicing in your presence, knowing that you hear our cries, knowing that you will speak to us from your word and knowing that you will conform us from one degree of glory to the next into the image of your Son, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would do this now by the power of your Spirit in our midst and we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, for those of you who may not know me, I didn't get to do my little introduction. My name's Jason and I'm one of the associate pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And I'm sure many of you, if not the bulk of you, are aware of the fact that one of my primary responsibilities here at the church is to oversee the bulk of the biblical counseling and pastoral care that happens here at Sovereign Grace. And you know, over the years, as I've counseled people, one of the struggles that I've been able to observe um, the most consistency with uh, consistently what comes up with the most frequency is the struggle of Christians when they're experiencing suffering as a result of their sin when they can make that connection 
to experience and know that they are at peace with the Lord. I've noticed that when someone is able to make that direct connection that this consequence, this suffering in my life is a result of this particular sin that I've committed or participated in, they they really genuinely struggle to be able to know I am at peace with the Lord through Jesus Christ. And I think there's two main reasons for that. I think there are primary there's all sorts of reasons, but I think there are two that are really important and central. First of all, when we all know this, when we're suffering in any way, shape, or form, our tendency is to be completely absorbed with that suffering, isn't it? Because it's almost as if our thoughts are magnetically drawn to focusing on our unpleasant circumstances. And so as a result, then, everything else uh, tends to get crowded out. And we have a really hard time focusing on anyone or anything other than our own personal pain and suffering. And so what happens then, oftentimes, is that our world becomes very, very small and shrunken. And our, our tendency is to completely and utterly collapse in on ourselves. In other words, our sinful bent in the midst of suffering is to become completely self-focused. But then second of all, if in the midst of that suffering, we're then aware that that there's a direct uh, um, relationship between that suffering and our sin, then we tend to be doubly focused and turned in on ourselves. Because when we find ourselves in that situation, suffering as a result of our own sin, we are particularly vulnerable to despair. And the reason for that is because our suffering serves as a constant reminder to us of our sin. And so the temptation then is to, rather than repent and then trust in the Lord as we suffer under His good and wise fatherly discipline. Instead, we believe the lie of the devil that there's no hope for us. That the good news can't possibly be so good that God can both forgive us of our sin and yet at the same time actually cause us to grow in Christ through our suffering that we've created by our sin. But you see, that's exactly what God is up to in this situation. And yet the problem is that we genuinely struggle to believe that. And you see, it's because of this struggle that I encounter again and again in counseling and that we all encounter in our Christian lives that Psalm 3 is such an invaluable gift to God. I'm sorry, from God to His church. Because what we're given in this psalm is an example of how to find peace in the Lord, even when we're suffering as a result of our sin. Because that's exactly the situation that David was in when he wrote this psalm. He was suffering under the consequences of his own disobedience. And yet, even in the midst of that, David rested securely in the Lord. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 3 together, what I want us to see is how we too can find peace and rest in the Lord, even when we're faced 
with the ramifications of our own sin. And in order to do that, I want us to look at the three movements of this psalm as they relate to David. We'll look at David's predicament in verses 1 and 2, David's peace in verses 3 through 6, and then David's prayer in verses 7 and 8. So let's look first then at David's predicament in verses 1 and 2. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Now as we begin to look at Psalm 3, what's interesting to note here is that it's the first psalm in the Psalter that gives us a superscript that describes for us the situation of the author when they wrote this psalm. That's what that heading is that's in all caps above Psalm 3. Because if you look at Psalm 1 and 2, what you'll notice is that neither one of them has a a similar heading. They don't have that, that heading that Psalm 3 does. And the reason for that is because Psalm 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the the entire book. In other words, the first two psalms are like two lenses of a pair of glasses. And it's through those lenses that we are then to read the rest of the Psalter. And so a good rule of thumb then as you study the, the psalms on your own is to ask yourself the question, no matter what psalm you're reading, how do Psalm 1 and 2 help me to understand this particular psalm that I'm studying? That's a, a very helpful question to ask. And hopefully, I'll model that for you this morning, even as we look at Psalm 3. But again, the point here is that Psalm 3 is the first psalm that gives us an explanation of what the person was experiencing when they wrote it, what their circumstances was. And what this explanation tells us is that this psalm, this lament psalm, if you will, was written by David when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. And so I'm sure for some of you, if not most of you, you can easily recall this event in the life of David. But what I want us to do is kind of do a a Concord flyover to remind us of what this situation was. Um, Because because I I want us to be able to see um, specifically what's going on here. And so for me to do that very briefly, where we need to start is with David's sin concerning Bathsheba. Because if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, what we see is that while David's armies are out fighting in battle on the front lines, David is hanging back in Jerusalem. And while he's there, what David decides to do is to sleep with the wife of one of his soldiers. And so that's exactly what David does. David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then tries to cover it up by having her husband Uriah killed in battle by the enemy. Now, sadly, David actually succeeds in his plan, but the problem is that he can't hide it from the Lord. The Lord sees it, and the Lord is greatly displeased by David's sin. And so then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, what we see is that the Lord sends Nathan his prophet to rebuke David and to tell him the consequences that are going to come about as a result of his sin. And I want you to see this 
So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 9. Nathan tells David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? Why have you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now obviously this prophecy here is absolutely devastating because the consequences of David's sin are horrific. But what's even more horrific is that all of this actually happens to David. And you see, it's while he's in the midst of this, these prophecies being fulfilled regarding the consequences of his sin, that he then writes Psalm 3. But before we look at that, it's important for us to remember that that David actually repented of his sin as soon as David as soon as Nathan rebuked him. And we know that from 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13 and also from the superscript of Psalm 51. You can go and read that sometime. But the point is David repents. And in response to David's repentance, Nathan tells him that the Lord has indeed forgiven him. And so David's guilt has been removed. But you see, here's the thing. Even though David's sin is forgiven, there are still consequences for his sin. And so what I want us to do then is I want us to look at these consequences because by doing so, it'll give us a better understanding of what's going on here in Psalm 3. And so the first consequence of David's sin that we see is that the child that he conceives with Bathsheba through adultery actually dies. Just shortly after it's born, I, I'm not, I don't recall the specific amount of time, and I don't even remember if we're given a specific amount of time, but shortly after the baby is born, the Lord snuffs out the child's life. And obviously David is, is absolutely devastated by this. He, he's, he's almost inconsolable. But this is just the beginning of the havoc that his sin has unleashed. Because then the second consequence that we see is the fulfillment of the Lord's promise from 2 Samuel chapter 12, that evil and the sword would rise up from within David's own house. Because what happens next in 2 Samuel chapter 13 is that David's son, Absalom, in a fit of rage, kills Amnon for raping his sister, Tamar. And so, knowing that he was now in danger, what Absalom does is he flees. He leaves Jerusalem. Eventually, he ends up coming back. And when he does come back, what Absalom does is he immediately begins to conspire against his father, David. He starts a a coup 
against the king. And the way Absalom does that is by winning over the hearts of the Israelites. He wins over their hearts by by meeting with them individually and telling them, you know, my dad doesn't really care about you. He doesn't care about your situation or your circumstances. But you see, I do. And I want to make things right. I want to take care of you. And so when I'm king, just remember that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I'm going to see to it. Don't forget that. That was Absalom's strategy, meeting with all of the men of Israel and winning them over this way to make big promises in order to win over their hearts and minds. Thank God that political strategy isn't used today, right? But you see, as, as Absalom grows in popularity using this strategy, it eventually gets to the point that David's advisors tell him that he needs to get out of Jerusalem. David, you've, you've got to get out of it. Your life is in danger, and your life is in danger at the hands of your own son. And so David does. He flees. But what's interesting is to note how David flees. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30, what we're told is that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. So you see, David leaves Jerusalem repentantly. He doesn't leave defiantly or belligerently, and he doesn't leave in a huff, breathing out curses as he goes. And do you know why David leaves this way? Do you know why he leaves humbly and repentantly? David leaves this way because he knows that this entire situation is all a result of the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba. It's all a fulfillment of what God said would happen through the prophet Nathan. But, and you think this would be enough, right? You'd think, surely the Lord won't add any more consequences for David's sin. Because this is sufficient. That's enough. No more. But you see, you're wrong. Because there's still one more part of Nathan's prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. And we see that fulfillment in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Because what Absalom does, under the advice of his counselors, is he sleeps with his father's ten concubines, his wives, in full view of all of Israel. And in my opinion, personally, and I think you probably agree with me, it doesn't get much more shameful or disgusting than that. And yet this is exactly as God said it would happen. And it happened as a consequence of David's sin. And so you see, when David says in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. This is what he's talking about. His family is falling apart. His son is conspiring against him. All of his countrymen have now turned against him as well. And so as a result, David is now a king in exile. David, the Lord's anointed, has been booted. Out of his own kingdom. And I want you to just stop and let that sink in for a moment. Because this should be absolutely shocking to us. I mean, after everything that we saw last week in Psalm 2 about how clearly God had promised and secured victory for David as king, 
And yet now here he is, just one psalm removed, and David is already in exile. It's shocking. So the question that we should be asking ourselves then is, well, what's going on here? Well, if we look at verse 2, what we see is that David's enemies think that they know exactly what's going on here. And so that's why David tells us that many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, David's enemies are telling him, David, listen, we know that God originally gave you the kingdom, but he's now taken it away from you, and he's given it to Absalom, your son. And so there's, there's no way for you to be restored, David. There's no salvation for you. There's no redemption for you. That's what David's enemies were saying to him. As a matter of fact, we're given a specific example of this in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. And the context here is that David has left Jerusalem with his little band of those who have remained faithful to him. And as he continues to go north on the road through the Jordan Valley, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5, When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. We know people like this in our everyday lives, don't we? Always a curse word on the end of their tongue. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now what's interesting is that as we read this account here, most of what Shimei says is actually true, isn't it? Because David is a man of blood. And he has reigned in the place of Saul. And the Lord has given the kingdom over to Absalom in a certain sense. And it's also true that all of this is a result of David's evil. In other words, Shimei isn't throwing darts at David here that don't stick. No, he's, he's throwing accusations at David that are true in large part, which is exactly why David then tells his men, because they want to, not to kill Shimei in the following verses. It's because David knows that Shimei, in many ways, is right. The predicament that David is currently in is, in fact, a direct result of his own sin. And so you see, this is David's predicament then as he writes this psalm. And what's so important for us to understand is that the reason we're shown his predicament is so that we might learn from it. And here's what we're supposed to learn. As we look at Psalm 3, what God wants us to realize is that there are indeed consequences for our sins. But don't misunderstand what I mean by that. Because I'm not saying that David's sins aren't forgiven. And therefore, he experiences these consequences. No, what I'm saying is that David's sins are forgiven. And yet at the same time, 
he's also experiencing consequences for those very forgiven sins. In other words, it's, it's not an either or. It's a, it's a both and. But you see, I don't think we like to think about that. We don't like to think about the fact that on the one hand, God forgives us of our sins. And yet on the other hand, he also disciplines us for our sins. And I know that's the case because I sit with people all the time in counseling who tell me that they're bewildered as to why God won't remove the consequences for their sins. And so what they tell me is, listen, I've repented of that sin. And I know that the Lord has forgiven me of that sin. And yet, why do I still suffer because of it? Well, you see, Psalm 3 actually tells us why. It's because even though we're forgiven by God, there are still earthly consequences, sufferings as a result of our sins. And so, while God does promise to remove our guilt, what He does not promise is to remove the earthly consequences of those sins. But you see, what we have to understand, and this is so important, I hope you walk away knowing this, that God brings about those circumstances, those sufferings, not to crush us, not to destroy us, but instead to purify us and to discipline us. And as Hebrews 12 tells us, to make us more like Him. In other words, when the Lord disciplines you with the consequences of your sin, realize that this isn't proof that you're not a child. Instead, it's proof that you are His child. And so as a result then, you should be encouraged when you see the Lord disciplining you because it's proof that you are His child and that He is a good Father to you. And yet at the same time that you're encouraged... See, we we don't mind hearing that part of it. Here's the part of it we don't like as much. At the same time that you're encouraged, you should also be warned. Because God's discipline is meant to cause you to hate your sin even more than you currently do. His intent is to discourage you from sinning again in the future. And so I hope what you can see then is that this is actually good news. Because in those rare instances... Where God's love for you isn't reason enough to keep you from participating in a particular sin, which it should be, by the way. At the very least, you can fall back on the truth that your good and wise Heavenly Father brings consequences into your life for your sins. Why? Because He loves you. And so we should fear that. We should fear God's fatherly discipline. In other words, God's promise to forgive you of your sins is not meant to remove the fear of the consequences for your sins. Instead, God's promise to forgive you is meant to assure you that He is with you and for you even as you suffer from the results of those sins. And so what we've seen then, as we've looked at David's predicament here, is that even though God has forgiven him of his sin, he's still suffering under the consequences of his sin because his heavenly Father is disciplining him. And you see, that should serve as both an encouragement on the one hand and a warning on the other for us as God's children today. So now that we've looked at David's predicament, next, let's look at David's 
peace, excuse me, David's peace. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me again. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Now, there's no denying that David's predicament here is incredibly overwhelming. Even as we just look at it, it's overwhelming for me to think about. And so we can only imagine the the pressure that he must have experienced in the midst of all this. And yet what's amazing is that as we transition now to the rest of the psalm, what we find is that David is at peace. And the reason why he's at peace is because he doesn't stay focused on his circumstances. Now that's not to say that he tries to deny them. Or that he tells himself that they're, they're not really as bad as they seem. No, he fully acknowledges the reality of his situation. And yet, even as he acknowledges it, at the same time, his circumstances don't ultimately hold his attention. Instead, what David does here is he turns his gaze away from his circumstances and toward the Lord. And the way David does that, the way he looks in faith to the Lord, is by consciously reminding himself of who the Lord is, who the Lord has revealed himself to be, and who the Lord has promised himself to be to David as God's anointed one. In other words, David doesn't just know truths about the Lord that have no consequence upon his everyday life. No, David knows the Lord himself personally. And so as a result, the Lord's character and promises are what shape every aspect of David's life. And that includes even his current predicament. And so that's why David, if you notice throughout this entire psalm, reminds himself again and again and again that God is a covenant-keeping God. I don't know if you noticed it, but no less than six times in this psalm, David refers to the Lord using his covenantal name, Yahweh. In your English text, it's that that word Lord that's that's capitalized from beginning to end, every single letter being in in caps. And you see, the reason that David is reminding himself that the Lord keeps all of his covenant promises is because at the moment, David's experience seems to be telling him the exact opposite. Because it seems as though God has abandoned him. And it feels as though God is against him. I mean, just think about the fact that even David's location seems to indicate that God is against him. Because after all, if David truly is God's king, then where is God's king supposed to be? Well, Psalm 2 tells us that God's anointed one should be on his holy hill in Jerusalem. And yet, where is David right now? He's not in Jerusalem. He's in exile. And so in many ways, it appears as though David's enemies are right. That Shimei is right. And that God has given the throne to Absalom. And so you see, to combat those lies... David is reminding himself over 
and over again that God is a covenant-keeping God. And because that's true, David can know with absolute certainty that the Lord will be faithful to the covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 because the Lord's character is trustworthy, utterly and completely trustworthy. But the next truth that David reminds himself of is that the Lord is a shield about him. And I absolutely love this imagery here because what David is saying is that God isn't uh, just a shield that protects him from an attack in one direction, like a typical shield. Instead, David says that God is a shield that surrounds him, that encompasses him on every side. And so as a result, David can't be flanked or taken by surprise because the Lord is surrounding him. The Lord hedges him in behind and before. In other words, what David is saying here is that if his enemies want to get to him, guess who they have to go through first? The Lord. And what David knows is that that is absolutely impossible. But what makes this imagery even more interesting is that David is also making a clear reference here to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Because what God says to Abraham, or Abram at the time, is, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And so you see what David is doing here is that he's reminding himself of the fact that God, that what God had promised to Abraham, he also promised to David. And so in essence, what David is saying here is, Lord, I know that you have promised to be a shield for me, even as you were a shield for Abraham. And so since you've sworn by yourself, as we see back in Genesis, to keep your promises to Abraham, I can know that you will also keep your promises to me. In other words, David is well aware of the fact that the promises that God made to him are built upon God's earlier promises to Abraham. And David finds abundant hope and confidence in that. As a matter of fact, David finds so much hope in God's promise to Abraham, that he references it again. Because the next truth that David reminds himself of is that the Lord is his glory. And again, this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, because right after God promises to be Abraham's shield, he also tells Abraham that his reward shall be very great. And you see, the greatness of Abraham's reward is the same idea behind the Lord being David's glory. And we know that because the Hebrew word for glory here in Psalm 3 could literally be translated abundance or riches. And so in essence, what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 is also what God has given to David in Psalm 3. Because what God had promised to both Abraham and David is that he would give them himself. And so the Lord would be their abundance. And the Lord would be their reward because He would be their glory. And so again, what we see here then 
is that David is reminding himself that he is in the same line as Abraham. Because just as the Lord was Abraham's shield and glory, the Lord was also David's shield and glory. And we can only imagine, but this must have brought unspeakable joy to David. Because even in the midst of losing almost everything that he held dear on this earth, he still had everything that he needed. Because David had God himself. And so even though he had temporarily lost his earthly glory, David would never lose his true glory because his true glory was the Lord of glory. Now the next truth that David reminds himself of is that the Lord is the lifter of David's head. And this is such powerful language because remember, how does David leave Jerusalem? 2 Samuel 15.30 tells us that David went up the Mount of Ascent, I'm sorry, the Ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. So David, so did David have his head held high as he left Jerusalem? No, he left with his head hung low in contrition and shame and humility because he'd lost everything. And the reason he'd lost it all was because of his own sin. And so he had absolutely no reason to hold his head up high. But you see, even though that's true of David, what's equally true of the Lord is that he is the lifter of David's head. Because the Lord is the one who would restore David to the throne. And the Lord is the one who would remove David's shame. And the Lord is the one who would exalt David as his anointed one. And David is completely confident of that. And you see, the reason for David's confidence is because the Lord is a covenant-keeping God who had made a covenant with David. But here's the amazing thing. Because David knows all these truths about the Lord, or maybe even more importantly, because he knows the Lord of whom they are true, David is then able to rest and be at peace in the midst of his predicament, which is absolutely astounding. And yet we can see it as clear as day if we look at verse 5, because David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now we miss this in the English, but in the Hebrew, David's I here is emphatic. And so what that tells us then is that it's as if David is saying, can you believe it? Even in the midst of all that is happening around me. And even in the face of my predicament, which was caused by my own sin. I can still sleep. And I don't just kind of sleep. It's not like I'm catnapping. No, 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 no. I sleep like the dead. That's what David is saying here. And in case we've missed it, the reason why David can sleep like this is stated for us in verse 5. It's because the Lord sustained me. And that could literally be translated, the Lord is supporting me. In other words, it's as if David is saying, God is my pillow. Because when I lay down my head to sleep, God is supporting me with His character and His promises. 
and his covenant to me. And so it is he who sustains me. It is he who supports me. And it is he upon whom I lay and rest and lean. In other words, David did not find his rest in his circumstances. And he didn't get swallowed up in his sufferings. And he didn't turn in on himself. Instead, David found his rest in the Lord. And he found his peace in the promises of the Lord. Because David took his focus off of his sufferings and off of himself and instead put his focus on the Lord. And you see, because God had done this incredibly gracious work in him, David was then able to say in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. In other words, even though David was surrounded on every side by his enemies, because the Lord was his covenant-keeping God, and because the Lord was his shield and his glory and the lifter of his head, David could rest. And David could sleep undisturbed. And brothers and sisters, I pray that you're already applying this to yourselves. Because this is the fight of faith that you and I engage in as Christians every single day. It's the fight to walk by faith and not by sight. But here's what you need to know. It's not just going to magically happen to us. It's not some mystical experience. And we're not just going to start living this way once we have the right emotional experience. Instead, by God's grace, we are to enter into this fight by doing what David did. Because through the eyes of faith, we must look, we must turn our gaze away from focusing on our circumstances and instead focus on the Lord and on His character and on all of His gracious promises to us as He's revealed them in His Word. And then we must cry out to Him in prayer. Because, folks, that's essentially the entirety of the Christian life. It's to walk by faith in the truth of God's Word and not by the sight of our own experience. And so by God's grace, may we grow in that more and more every day. But you know, before we move on to the next point, there's still one more question that we need to answer here. Because how can David possibly be at peace when almost all of these sufferings were brought upon him by his own sin? How can he have confidence and assurance that his sins are forgiven and that God is for him and that his sufferings aren't just really God seeking to destroy him? Because ultimately, that's what David deserves, isn't it? David deserves nothing but the destructive wrath of God for his sin. So then how could David know with absolute certainty that God was for him and not against him? How could David know that he was at peace with God? Well, you see, the only way that David could know that was because he also knew that the future work of the coming Messiah had already secured David's peace with God. Even though the Messiah hadn't even come yet, David had faith in the Messiah's accomplishment of salvation on his behalf. In other words, David's assurance was that God 
that God was for him was the future redeeming work of the coming Messiah. And you see, David had little glimpses of what that redeeming work would look like because David knew that he himself was a picture of the Messiah who was to come. David knew that he was a shadow or a reflection of the Messiah that God had promised. And so as David's anointed king, what David knew is that he was to point himself and all of Israel to the greater king who was to come. And you see, that greater king was Jesus, the Messiah. And so as a result then, what we see here in the life of David from Psalm 3 we also see in the life of Jesus. Now, we've got to be careful because they're not perfect parallels, right? Because, again, David is a type and Jesus is the anti-type. And so there's going to be differences, but there's also going to be similarities. And since we don't have time to go through all the similarities, I had a big old list of them and I had to cut it out last night so the sermon wasn't too long. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to um, mention one of each, one similarity and one difference. One of the most significant similarities between David and Jesus and also one of the most significant differences between the two. And probably the most significant similarity is the fact that both David in Psalm 3 and Jesus in his earthly ministry were kings in exile. Because just as David was in exile and away from the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, so too Jesus was in exile and away from the presence of his Father who was in heaven. And then probably the most significant difference between David in Psalm 3 and Jesus in his earthly ministry is that while David was forced into exile, Due to his own sin, Jesus willingly chose to go into exile to save you and me from our sins. And so you see, what these two realities show us then is that David's exile was only a shadow of the exile that Jesus would undergo. Because in Jesus' exile, he would be the blessed man of Psalm 1, who delighted in the law of God and perfectly obeyed it in our place. And the reason Jesus did that was so that we could be declared righteous in Him before the Father. And what Jesus also did in His exile is that He took the curse of God's wrath upon Himself for our sins. And the reason He did that is so that we could be forgiven by the Father. And what Jesus also did in his exile is he then rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns, thus ending his exile forever. Now obviously, we all need to acknowledge the truth that David didn't know then everything that we know now about the Messiah's exile, because we're on this side, the other side of the Messiah of Jesus' coming. But what we also need to acknowledge is the truth that David did know that God was for him and had forgiven him based on the redeeming work of the coming Messiah. And you see, that was the source of David's assurance that God was for him and not against him. It was the atoning work of the Messiah who was to come. And brothers and sisters, the same is true 
for us today. Because the only way that we can have assurance that God is for us in the midst of our current exile is by faith in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. And so you see, it is Jesus who is our blessed hope. Because now that his exile is over, is finished, is complete, and now that he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, we can know that one day our exile will be over as well. Because make no mistake about it, the church is currently in exile because we're not home yet. And you see, we won't be home until either King Jesus returns or through death he takes us to be with him. And so in the meantime, we can walk in the peace and security of knowing that we have an advocate at the right hand of the Father, even as David did. And because that's true, we can have confidence that God is for us, even when we're suffering under the consequences of our own sin. That was the source of David's peace then, and that is the source of our peace as well today. So we've looked at David's predicament and David's peace. Now lastly, and this is my shortest point, Let's look at David's prayer. David's prayer. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me again. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, as we look at these closing verses, I'm well aware of the fact that it probably seems rather odd to label them as David's prayer, because the reality is that this entire psalm is a prayer of David to the Lord. But in another sense, it's not odd to label these two last verses as David's prayer, because it's here in these last two verses that David begins to petition the Lord. And the first thing that David asked the Lord to do is to arise. And that word arise there should remind us of a couple of things. First of all, it should remind us of the language that David used to describe his enemies back in verse 1. When he said, many are rising against me. And the reason that that translation is similar is because in the Hebrew, those two words share the same root. And so what David is doing here then is he is contrasting his enemies rising with God's rising. And what he's saying is, yes, it's true that my enemies have arisen all around me, but now it's time for the Lord to arise. And so as the Lord arises, here's what David asks him to do. First of all, David asks God to save him, to deliver him. And that request flies directly in the face of David's enemies. Because back in verse 2, what we saw is that David's enemies were saying, there is no salvation for him from God. And so what David is asking the Lord to do here is to prove them wrong. He's asking the Lord to save him so that his enemies know that the Lord is with David and not with them. And then the second thing that David asked the Lord to do is to destroy his enemies. At the end of verse 7, we read, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. 
you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, what's interesting about David's request here is that he's so certain that this is going to happen that it's actually stated as if it already has. In other words, because David knows that God will destroy his enemies, he prays for it to happen. It was part of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And David knew that, so here he is praying for it to happen. And as he's praying, what, the, what he asked the Lord to do is to destroy his enemies in two ways. First, David wants the Lord to strike all his enemies on the cheek. And in David's day, that was essentially like a rebuke or, or a humiliation. So it's kind of like a, a nonverbal way of saying, shame on you. And we see this in the movies sometimes, right? And we all go, oh, it's because, yeah, he's bringing shame upon this other person. And so what David is asking the Lord to do here then is to rebuke his enemies. But then secondly, David also wants the Lord to break the teeth of the wicked. And the reason David asked the Lord to do this is because he views his enemies as as animals, as wild animals. And I think we all know this, but typically the most dangerous part of an animal is what? It's their teeth. Because for an animal, their teeth are their only weapon. And so what David is asking for the Lord to do here, as brutal and as violent as he is, is he says, Lord, I want you to bust their teeth out of their mouth and thus disarm them. I want you to break their teeth so that they're harmless. And you see, David's great confidence in all of this springs from his understanding of verse 8. That salvation belongs to the Lord. Because what that means for David is that ultimately it doesn't matter what his enemies say. It doesn't matter what the flesh says or what the world says. Or what the devil says. Because salvation doesn't belong to them. And so even as his enemies rage against him. And seek his life. And accuse him. And even as they point out the truth. About how wretched he is. And how terrible his sin is. And how unworthy he is. To be in covenant with the Lord. Even as they do all that. David can know that they don't have the final say. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And so because that's true, and because the Lord has declared David to be both righteous and forgiven in the coming Messiah, David knows that he can weather whatever sufferings come his way, even when the cause is his own sin. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And you see, brothers and sisters, that's our great hope as well. Because just as Shimei accused David of his sin against the Lord, and then used that sin to lie to David that God had abandoned him, so too the flesh and the world and the devil will do the same to us. They will lie to us. And say that because of our sin, God has abandoned us. And he's against us. But you see, the good news this morning is that Jesus has removed their teeth, as it were. Because he has crushed the head of the serpent in his life and death 
and burial and resurrection and ascension. And because he's done that, our faith in Jesus can extinguish the fiery darts that our enemies throw at us. And in Jesus, we can find blessing and refuge and rest and security and glory. And we can know that even though the church is currently in exile in this world, just as surely as the Lord kept his promise to Abraham and to David and to Jesus Christ himself, so too he will keep his promise to us that one day Jesus will return to take us home. And so since that's true, since we have an abundance of hope, let us endure, brothers and sisters. Not by being consumed with our sins and our sufferings and ourselves, but instead by being consumed with our Savior and with His mighty deeds. Because truly, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are brought very low before us, before you. Because we know that we come before you sinners all. And I think each one of us here this morning can look at sufferings, trials, consequences in our lives that were brought about because of our own sin. And so, Father, we pray that we would see that discipline as you intended, not to crush us, not to destroy us, but to make us more and more like your Son, to impart to us a greater hatred for our sin. And Father, we're thankful for the peace that we're able to have. We're thankful that we can know that we're at peace with you and that you are for us and not against us because all your wrath was spent on Jesus for our sins. And so we're now at peace with you through him. And so you have removed the teeth of our enemies as they try to attack us and bite us and accuse us. We can know that Jesus has broken their teeth and disarmed them and made them harmless. Not because what they say isn't true about our sinfulness and unworthiness, but because we know that we are now in Jesus and you treat us as your only begotten son. Oh, Father, what unspeakable hope, what unspeakable joy. And so we pray that this would cause us, even as it caused David, to go forth and do what you had called him to do. That we would go forth taking your gospel to everyone that we know and ultimately to the ends of the earth, knowing that salvation belongs to you. And so we can rejoice knowing that the mission that Jesus has has left us with to proclaim the gospel to people from every tongue and tribes and nations, that Jesus will bring a people for himself from all the peoples of the world who will worship him as the Lamb and the Father. Father, we pray that we take great confidence in that, not just in our relationship with you, but as a result in our relationship with others as well, knowing that no matter what they say, you have broken their teeth. So build us up, we pray. Uh, Conform us more to the image of your Son. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.